Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we talk about our favorite comics and graphic novels, and on episodes like these, talk to our favorite creators making the comics we love. Today, I am joined by the comic book writer Rom V, who you may know from The Many Deaths of Lila Starr, Swamp Thing, Detective Comics, and most recently, The Vigil. How are you doing, Rom? Yeah, good. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, just got back from traveling to Chicago, so uh, settling back into London time zones and whatnot. Wonderful. Did you get a chance to try the Chicago pizza? They they always make a claim have, for flame. I have had it before, uh, and I hate to disappoint all the Chicago pizza lovers, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a New York pizza guy. So That's what I like to hear. <laughs> I'm currently recording out of Brooklyn, so that was a test, and you passed. Perfect. <laughs> no, I lived in I lived in New York. I lived in Brooklyn actually for a while near Bed Stuy, uh, oh, for about about a year and a half. Yeah, that's really fun. And you said you're in London now, right? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. So you kind of have a a crazy origin story leading into comic books. If I understand right, you were a chemical engineer mm-hmm. before making the switch to comic books in 2016. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was a chemical engineer, studied chemical engineering at Phil- uh, at UPenn in Philadelphia for four years, uh, worked as a chemical engineer for about three, three and a half after that, uh, and then switched to writing, which had always been a hobby since I was a kid, um, and then moved to the UK to study creative writing and then sort of self-published my first uh, graphic novel called Black Mumba at the end of 2016. And uh, yeah, that was kind of the thing that kickstarted my career, if you will. That is impressive. Um, My roommates in college were all chemical engineers, and that's not a halfway kind of degree. That's quite, quite the thing to do before doing comic books. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't particularly enthused by it. I wasn't particularly interested in it. But uh, I'm the kind of person who will acquire some measure of proficiency at anything I try to do. So, (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Do you feel like sort of going through that engineering program, viewing the world like an engineer, informs your storytelling at all? Or were there always two parts of you? Um, I think, honestly, the the engineering stuff kind of informs my craft more than anything else, uh, the need to be meticulous, the need to understand structure, the need to, the ability to kind of fall back on the tangibles when when inspiration and the intangible won't carry you across the river is, uh, is a nice thing to fall back on. But I think mostly I traveled a lot for work when I was a chemical engineer and it was, it's the travel more than anything else that probably influences and informs my writing i like that a lot it's definitely a big part of your comic books the idea of place and how place informs a character and the culture mm-hmm. they come from informs that character yeah. do you have a favorite locale you visited that you haven't gotten to put into your comics yet um it's very difficult to say um Obviously, I've, I've visited a lot of places. Like, I guess the vast majority of the places I've visited, I haven't ever directly put into a comic. Um, you know, there might be allusions to things I've experienced here and there, uh, but I don't necessarily translate them directly as places into comics because, you know, you could travel and even live in a place for months on end and not really know enough about it to. to to feel like you have some sort of intimate understanding of it. Um, India and Indian locations, of course, are an exception to that um, because I spent close to 18, 19 years of my life uh, living there. Uh, And so, yeah, I I use little bits and pieces. And I think more than anything else, like um, traveling kind of reaffirmed this idea that Humanity, the experience of humanity and the experience of stories uh, have somewhat of a universality, uh, uh, an element that translates across borders, across geographical divides. Um, 
so if, if anything, like that's, that's the bit that I really take away from it, that you recognize similarities when you, when you go to completely different places where even, even if the dissimilarities are distinct within them, if you dig deep enough, you'll find common roots and common ideas. I like that a lot. Um, returning a little bit to your answer about chemical engineering, you talk a lot about structure and being mm -hmm. meticulous. Um, that was one of the big standouts for me as you began your run with Detective Comics, this idea of presenting your story as an opera. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about what that approach means and why you took it with the character of Batman? Sure. Um, I mean, obviously, when the book was first announced, when, when we said we wanted to do a gothic opera, I think people immediately imagined like actual music and theaters and it's <laughs> being set to, but my intention really was to, was to say that the theatricality of an opera uh, will come, come through. Um, you know, operas are inclined to spend time with their characters, with their tragedies and, and you know, there's no there's no stoicism, or there's very little stoicism in an opera. In an opera, um, you know, even even strong characters in their moment of weakness will break down into song and 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 melancholy, uh, and so that kind of dramatic uh, take, I think, is is the opposite of what I had seen largely in the Batman comics. Uh, in that there's always meant to be this kind of soldier who was very sure of what he was doing. And even when he faltered, he never really faltered. Um, and, and I kind of wanted to take the opposite approach that this was a person who, who you know, rose up and, and won his victories despite his failings and weaknesses and not by ignoring them, not by uh, overcoming them, you know, in a, in a, in a fraction of, in a fraction of period. So, um, that was really the kind of operatic aesthetic that I wanted to take. Uh, and then obviously the, the aesthetic elements are there. The visuals are there, you know, long gowns, big costumes, um, dark shadows of Gotham falling all over the place. Even the characters are kind of steeped in this kind of otherworldly mythology, if you will. Um, and so I guess, uh, the most important thing is like all of all of the players in the detective comics runs so far feel like characters feel like tragic characters like actors playing roles rather than this kind of um i don't know verite take on on what comics are supposed to be as close to reality if you as you can if you like yeah i really like the the idea that you've been fleshing out in the recent issues of Batman as like a, a bit in the larger story, right? I think it returns to what you've said about finding the commonality of storytelling through mm -hmm. travel. And I think your approach to myth and incorporating myth into your comics is a really great example of that. Is there anything in particular that you feel like adding a deeper mythology to your stories adds beyond just that stories are universal aspect well i think i think mythologies are are at least insofar as we talk about them in context of you know finite stories like this um they're crucibles right there they are they're larger than one character and therefore their force or the weight that they bear in a story is much larger than any one character. So really what you're doing is you're kind of constructing this crucible within which your characters are going to be tested and forged and mutated and destroyed and built in, in different ways. Uh, and so um, if you want to tell a different Batman story while still telling a Batman story that everyone, you know, has, has all the bits that everyone expects, then really what you need is to, is to have a new mythology in whose crucible you can find a new, new way of testing uh, Batman. Um, so I think partly it does that because I think largely Batman's narrative has been set against the backdrop of very, 
very American ideals so far. Um, and they don't always work, uh, even, even in real world examples, you know, you, you, you have this kind of, and, and I've lived in America for uh, eight years, nine years. Um, you suddenly take those ideals and that ethos and that philosophy and you put it against the backdrop of someplace like India or someplace like Afghanistan or someplace like Syria. And you start, you start seeing all the ways in which it no longer applies or it breaks apart. Uh, and that's because, you know, ideologies and philosophies are cultural artifacts and they don't apply when the cultural backdrop has changed. And so what we're doing with this run really is bringing a new philosophy, a new mythology to Gotham and Batman must find a way of rebuilding his philosophy if he is to stand his ground uh, against this crucible, if you, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I like the idea, so many people have broken down the bat, right? I mm -hmm. like the idea of just demonstrating to the bat that he is small on a world scale, right? Like there are ideas outside of you and these are going to present new challenges to you. I like that a lot. Yeah. And also I feel like largely every time the bat has been broken down, it has only been to reaffirm his philosophy that yeah. existed even before he was broken down. Right. It was, it was only a way of saying that, no, I just need to believe harder. I just need to believe stronger. Um, I kind of want to do a narrative where you break down the bat and he has to change. I don't think we've seen that nearly enough, where the Batman has to fundamentally change some kind of core tenet within their philosophy, within his philosophy, to be able to come back stronger, faster, harder, whatever. Um, and I think, I think that presents an interesting question, simply because, like, you know, very early on, my thought process with this was like, you know, Batman's been around for, and this is this is also the reason why we started off with a note of Bruce being older uh, somehow. Uh, and so very early on, my thought process was like, surely, you know, 40 years on, he's not still doing it for vengeance. He's not still doing it because he's angry that his parents died. Obviously, that has mutated into something that that must be bigger, that must be broader um and and otherwise like emotionally batman has not changed at all would be would be the uh, the takeaway and and that can't be true um so yeah i'm kind of trying to examine if not if not vengeance then then what why does batman do batman things now um and yeah we'll, we'll get to it in time i like that it reminds me a lot of what i liked most about Lila Star and Swamp Thing, this sort of recontextualization of self through extenuating circumstances. I feel like that is at the core of what I love about your work is the examination of self. So I guess my question for you would be, what have you learned about redefining yourself or finding yourself through your writing process? I mean, part of it is um, that that question is, extraordinarily difficult to answer because I think part of the process of writing in itself is not about discovering an answer. Like discovering an answer is uh, probably the least important part of trying to explore an idea through, through writing, but just the exploration, just the getting your hands dirty, and, and sort of pulling apart and trying to see why things work the way they work. I think in doing that, firstly, like writing a Batman story isn't about me, like Leila Star isn't about me. And so necessarily whatever answers you find have to be, as a reader, whatever answers you find have to be about you. And as a writer, whatever answers I find have to be about me. And even then, they're only answers because you as a reader or I as a person reflecting upon my own work want to find answers. The work itself only contains questions. And, and I think it goes back, and I think this is a hallmark of good storytelling that I appreciate from a, from a lot of different creators, is that none of it is meant to be didactic. None of it is meant to be prescriptive. Uh, it's meant to be nudging you towards asking important questions. Um, so, so yeah, um, 
if anything, I enjoy getting to a point where I don't know the answer. Uh, and, and so, yeah, like even, even with Leila star, um, I don't know that there is an answer that wasn't already there on page one, panel one, you know, did anyone not know that life is about living? Everyone <laughs> knew life is about living. So, so then why does it feel cathartic five issues in? I think it feels cathartic, not because of the answer, but because of the questions we had to ask to get there. I like that a lot. The role of the creative is to present and flesh out the questions, not to. Yeah. Like very early it. on one, authorial advice I really like is like, don't write the thing. If you could write the thing, you know, why would you need, if you could articulate exactly what you wanted to say through a story, why would you need to tell a story? You know, you just articulate whatever you want to say, but sometimes and necessarily good stories have points that they, they try to make or, or have, have, you know, hypotheses that they want to present, which are, near impossible to articulate uh, outside of human experience. And that's why you end up with stories. Um, otherwise, you end up with parables and, and you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was reading some interviews you did leading up to the launch of The Vigil. Mm -hmm. And you talked a lot about the role of truth in that book and exploring mm -hmm. truth. It feels like sort of a continuation of what you're talking about here. So I guess, what do you think superhero comics can help teach us about the truth and how to examine complicated questions in this sort of post-truth world that everyone's sorting their way through? Well, I mean, I think that those are two very distinct answers. Um, firstly, I think the the thing that is becoming more and more evident to to every to all of us is that the truth is incredibly malleable depending on how much you're willing to suspend your disbelief how much you're willing to suspend your belief even um and so for someone to to stand you know, in, in today's world uh, and say that, oh, the earth is flat it is absurd to a point where you realize it's not about evidence. It's not about knowledge. It's about needing to believe in something that everyone else says is unbelievable. Um, and, and I think superhero comics in that sense have used that idea that believe in the unbelievable to an extent where they are both shining examples of human resilience and, and the ability to hold on to hope in, in, you know, in darkness, but also shining examples of the, of the human ability to be pigheaded about things and, and hold your beliefs at the expense of propriety and, and kindness and, and um, yeah, just being, being a human being to another person, you know? Um, and I think that is fascinating because superheroes in that sense to me, uh, are, are, are an extreme way of testing out human ideas and human tendencies and philosophies, right? Like these, all these characters are just us, but with the volume turned up to like 25 rather than five or six. And, and so, um, they take the best and worst of human tendencies and we take them to an extreme and we end up with superheroes in, in a lot of ways. Um, so I don't know that there's anything to learn or take from that, but it's fascinating to, to understand, at least from seeing people's responses to some of these superheroes, especially characters like, you know, Rorschach. The number of people who come out and say, yes, I loved him in Watchmen. That's how I want to be. Like, really? You want to be like that? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and, you know, that's not to say he's a villain. Like, he's still he's still a hero. He's still very much a hero in that story. Um, but I, I doubt he's the kind of hero you want to aspire to at the end of that narrative. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's one part of your... Uh, of your answer. The second part of it, I think, 
is a much more hopeful tone is, is that superheroes kind of perform the same function to my to my understanding as mythologies did in the past um you know they weren't meant to be and, and i and i draw a distinction between mythology and religion i think religion tells you there's someone greater than you and you must sort of bow down or you must you must be subservient to their message or their philosophy whereas mythologies if anything express to you that these things are infinitely more powerful than you but they're all idiots and um if anything you as a human being are are in possession of infinitely more compassion infinite uh understanding and and love and joy than the gods are uh, I mean, go back to Norse mythology, Greco-Roman mythology, Indian mythology. They're all, in that sense, very similar. They're gods doing terrible things while humans look on. And, and I think the final, me- the final message is that truly every god and therefore every superhero aspires to a power that is entirely within your grasp as a human being. And that is to, to be good. That is a, that's an interesting lens. I hadn't ever thought about it that way. I feel like I have to chew on that for a minute. <laughs> um, wow. Do you feel the pressure to be didactic as a comic book creator? I feel like a lot of online discourse surrounding superheroes often wants things to be very cut and dry. And it seems pretty clear through this conversation that you like presenting compelling questions, but you're not trying to like cut it down the middle for people. Do you feel that pressure as a creator? Or have you been able to step a little bit back from current? I feel like, I feel like it's an easy, I feel like it's an easy trick to pull. You know, you tell someone what they want to hear. You get lots of claps, lots of likes, lots of hugs, and it feels good, but it's kind of, it's either pedantic or disingenuous. It's, it's either pedantic because if you're just telling people what they already know, you're just reaffirming their beliefs, then why tell a story? Just tell people they're right and be done with it. Um, or it's disingenuous in that and this is the worst case scenario for writers. You don't really believe in anything and you will write whatever it takes to, to, to reaffirm other people's beliefs and therefore end up being didactic in a completely malleable and disingenuous way. Uh, and, and in both cases, like it's supremely boring to write that kind of story more than anything else, you know, the judgments aside, um, can't stand that kind of story because you already know what the point of the story is when you start the story and um the the characters are are 2d cardboard cutouts because they've already told you on you know page four or page five exactly who they are and what they're going to do and what they believe in and that's what you're going to get for 30 issues now Sometimes it's nice to have a warm blanket, but I don't like writing warm blankets. <laughs> yeah, I think ultimately, well, everyone has, not everyone puts their finger on it. That is what rings hollow in a lot of those kind of stories, right? I think they have their moment for about five seconds. Everyone goes, wow, that's amazing. And then it doesn't stick with you in the same way. It's interesting. You bring up Rorschach from Watchmen, right? That's a comic with a lot of hard questions, a lot of crazy things yeah. happen. Yeah. But it has stuck with us for a reason because ultimately it raises questions that you are going to be continuing to think about. Also, like, none of those characters are nice. Yeah. Let me put it that way. Like, nice is a word that I really love and I really hate because it's so ubiquitous. It's not really telling you that someone is righteous or they believe in something or they're there's no hard edges to nice nice is like i don't know a perfectly organic curve the kind of memory pillow that you put your head down on that's nice Mm -hmm. and none of alan moore's characters in watchmen are nice good or bad hero or villain but they're none of them nice and so 
what that means is that they all have hard edges. They all have flaws. They all have things that you will agree and disagree with. Uh, and it's impossible to do that when you're trying to be didactic because either you're didactic and everyone agrees with you in which, in which case you made the perfect memory pillow or you're didactic and no one agrees with you, but because you've done it in such a didactic and hollow way, it kind of falls aside as this kind of wet noodle edgy take that's, that you had that no one paid any attention to. Um, the stuff that really cuts is even, even stuff that is bad, even bad takes that really cut are ones that have some semblance of truth within them. And you wonder why they cut so hard. And, and even the good takes that really hit hard are because they are reconciling with something that is that is prickly enough for it to for it to stick. So do you have a project you were able to work on that you feel like raised the most interesting questions for you as a creative that stuck with you in that way? Uh, the Savage Shores, I think, was, was definitely one of those projects where I felt like I was asking some questions, both of, of myself, the generation of uh, Indians who grew up around me, people of privilege who seem to think that the empire wasn't that bad. And then also a generation of people who grow up in, in what was at the time imperialist West, imperialist Europe, if you will. Um, and, you know, those people would say like, wow, was it so bad? Did we do terrible things? So I think all of that was certainly part of my head canon when I was writing these habit chores. I don't know how much of that makes it onto the paper. Um, certainly not much as, uh, as a didactic thing. I, I hope not, but I think the reason that book kind of struck a chord with people, you know, across boundaries is because somewhere I hope people are asking the right questions rather than finding answers. Yeah. I mean, the book had teeth. I'm not gonna, it was the first book of yours I read and I was like, that, that had teeth. I'm going to keep my eye on that name. So I think mission accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think I've done other things since then, but, um, largely I think my creative work has focused on more individual concerns than, than societal concerns from there on. I think blue and green, Layla star, um, let us start probably a little bit more universal, but blue and green, certainly inward looking about what it is like to be creative more than anything else. And if you look at it in that sort of respect, then, then that book also has hard questions that it wants to ask, but, it, but those are questions that, you know, it is asking of its own character and therefore whoever is reading it is potentially asking it of themselves. Um, but not necessarily of other people, not necessarily of society at large. I like that. So it's talking about your drive to tell stories and at the heart of these stories, it's kind of a simple question, but why comics? Like why this medium to get your stories out there? I mean, to be honest, uh, I haven't particularly tried to limit myself to, to this medium. So uh, whatever answer I give you is only degrees of me liking a medium okay. uh, more than than there being any specific reason as to why this one and not any any others. Like I started off writing prose. I wrote prose short stories. I've written poetry. Uh, I wrote a novel before I wrote my first comic, um, unpublished novel before I wrote my first comic. Um, and when I wrote my first comic, I think, it was um, off of reading a lot of prose short stories, uh, certainly off of reading Paul Oster, off of reading George Saunders. So I was taking essentially what is a prose short story format and trying to condense it into a into short comics. Um, and I'd always had some measure of talent for visual storytelling. Um, not in that I can, I mean, I can draw, but I can't draw sequential stuff. Uh, but I know what to do with visuals 
so that they're telling a story alongside me using text to tell a story. Uh, they're two different things. And, and I feel like the best comics do that where you're getting two layers of story, maybe three layers of story, depending on how the visuals are placed or what you show in the panel alongside the dialogues that, that are being used alongside the caption boxes. So, um, so I feel like I had some measure of innate talent with the medium. So when I started working with it, I did a few uh, stories in India before, before I tried to create my own graphic novel. Um, I felt, it just felt natural. It just felt like, oh, cool. I know what I'm doing here. Um, and then I think I built on it from there. Uh, I, you know, did a lot of research in terms of design and aesthetics and, and why comics are this kind of unique medium where you're taking text and sort of illustrative art and then also like geometric architectural design on a page and you're kind of telling a story through all three, maybe even four facets of storytelling. So. I really liked Alan Moore in his recent Maestro series talked about comics having an A, B, and C track that you can't find anywhere else. And so I like Yeah, it. yeah. I absolutely like I haven't seen that, but the most fascinating thing for me is trying to figure out just how many layers of juxtaposition exist in a comic. Uh, and it's really fascinating to think about because Firstly, you're juxtaposing text and art, mm -hmm. which is obvious. You're also juxtaposing text and text because you're reading things in an order, um, even though they're disjoint because they're in separate boxes, if you will. Um, and then you're juxtaposing art and art because a panel follows another panel. Um, then you're juxtaposing an individual panel against its page. Uh, that's how page composition comes into play. Uh, then you're juxtaposing every left page to every right page. That's why splash pages and, and double page spreads come into play. Um, and then you can go even further and think about juxtaposing your story with your cover and even further and think about juxtaposing every issue against the collected story. Uh, and, and it really is that sort of layered thinking that sometimes you see it executed wonderfully well in an issue and you just go like, how did you do that? How did you think so many? It's like playing 5D, 6D chess. Yeah. How much of that makes it into your scripting process? It sounds like you have a very visual process of creating these. Yeah. Is that, do you have like big Alan Moore style scripts or do you have a like do something cool kind of script? Um, I, I would say somewhere in between. Um, I think I think the Alan Moore style script is is great when you have a specific idea of what you want to do. So sometimes I will write like that. Sometimes I will go, I want this character here. I want them doing this thing. Like just today, I gave someone feedback on a character, you know, saying something while they're cleaning their glasses. And it's such a weird thing. Like if you clean your glasses and hold them up in front of your face, it looks like you've really got some crap on your glasses that you're trying to clean. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you clean your glasses down here by your waist while you're talking, it looks like it's a habitual tick that you have while you talk to someone. And so just those kind of nuances of body language, if you put that into a script and your artist, you know, you go like, oh, he's cleaning his glasses as he's talking. Depending on where your artist put the glass, puts the glasses, it, it says very different things. And so sometimes you have to go back and be like, no, 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 no. By that, I meant he is cleaning his glasses at his waist, not like up above in front of his face. So it's weird stuff like that, that if you wanted to preempt every, the artist's every move, you would put into a script. And I can totally see a script being, you know, like a novel uh, at that point. Um, but then... There are also pages where I'm more interested in the emotional content of a page, less interested in the specifics of what's on a panel. Uh, and so on those pages, sometimes I'll just go like, this is the feeling I want. Everything else is up to you. Um, so yeah, so it, it, it differs. It, it varies. I like that. I feel like I've been saying that a lot, but it's it's been true every time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... 
keep you for 10 more minutes. I want to mm -hmm. talk about the vigil and then your new comic with Philippe Andrade rare flavors. So mm -hmm. with the vigil, I, I saw it pitched as your sort of take on Warren Ellis style spy thriller in a superhero universe. Yeah. Uh, what drew you to creating a new team of characters within that milieu? I mean, um, the creating the new team of characters that had always been there. I, I recently on a Twitter thread shared a sketch I had of one of these characters from 2014, uh, which is long before I started making comics. So like the story that the team has certainly been in my head for a long time. Uh, and obviously I had read planetary authority, global frequency, all those things before. Um, and, um, I think it was at the intersection of my fascination with those kinds of stories and the fact that I've never seen India and, and that region of Asia truly represented in espionage narratives. But it's absurd because it is genuinely one of those kind of conflict hotspots in the world, right? Like, Pakistan, Afghanistan, they're all in the same place. And surely there's all kinds of clandestine activity going on. And yet I'd, I've never seen that narrative taken up in any interesting way. So there was, there was the inklings of wanting to do, you know, modern day espionage, but with Indian characters and Indian culture and background uh, and those kinds of concerns in there. Um, and then the We Are Legends imprint came along and, and Jess uh, Chen, who's the editor who created the imprint, she was like, hey, we want some, we want to introduce some Indian characters into the DCU. And yeah, those two things just kind of coincided. Uh, also, you know, scratches an itch for me. The thing I really dislike about when people say we want you to do Indian superheroes, they almost always mean we want you to do some kind of weird mythological god turned into superhero, mm -hmm. which is about 80% of the Indian superhero comics that exist out there as well. Uh, and so I wanted to do a, you know, this is contemporary, modern India, technology, spies, uh, vested interests, corporations, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and show that it was kind of, it's kind of, Hey, it's possible to do this kind of narrative. Yeah. What, does the research process look like for creating a contemporary espionage comic book? I feel like that sounds so cool in my head and I would have no idea how to approach even starting that. I mean, you have to be, I suppose, infinitely curious to begin with. Like half the things in here I knew before I had the idea for the comic. Um, I know it, want, it wanted, it wants to deal with conspiracy theories. So, um, I have for the longest time had a fascination with the idea of military experiments being carried out, um, you know, long before stranger things was a thing. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the Philadelphia experiment where the U S Navy, you know, disappeared a ship for 12 minutes and then it came back reportedly with sailors fused into the body of the ship. Um, stuff like that. I've always had an eye out for, so that, certainly helps with the, with the conspiracy theory and rogue technology part of it. Um, then the espionage thing is just like picking up weird factoids. I've, I've got friends whose parents were in the Indian military. And then I've got friends whose parents, uh, were, uh, in RAW, which is like the Indian, uh, equivalent of the CIA, if you will, it's called the research and analysis wing, suitably vague and non-indicative title um but um but yeah so you hear things here and there uh you you can't really point out how much of that is exaggerated but then you start taking pieces and saying okay well is this absurd or can i can i make it work and and if you can find enough play enough pieces to make it work then you've got a working espionage story i like it i like it you just got to be omnivorous in your interests yeah, yeah. I, th I think that applies to any kind of good writing, to be honest. Like most 
interesting writers I know are infinitely obsessive about just picking up pieces of completely useless information until it's not completely useless. <laughs> what do you feel like is your most niche fascination? Because for me, like, big dinosaur guy. Didn't give up on that after five. My friends will go to a museum. They're like, oh, this isn't like a, a little thing for you. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I think weird science for me is is uh, I, probably an artifact of my engineering days, but generally like absurd physics, uh, you know, what's on the other side of a black hole? Um, could you potentially create uh, a, a singularity if you accelerated a particle fast enough? You know, stuff like that. Um, yeah. I find I find endlessly fascinating. I've always been interested in physics, so um, yeah, yeah, I love that, and I think you'll see a lot of that in the vigil as well. Like the the issue two came out, and there was a kid who could control the weather with his emotions, uh, and like there there are actual experiments. There's actual evidence of experiments being carried out to see if you could generate ions using like emotional triggers, which is, which is fantastic. Like, and you, if you could transmit those ions into an ionosphere, it's like cloud seeding, but on a, on a ionic level, then maybe you could generate weather patterns. Who knows? I, I find that, I find that stuff. Yeah. Like, I love that. I love that because the thing I really hate about badly written science fiction is when you can tell like that's scientifically so inaccurate that I can't buy the rest of the story that hangs around it. Whereas if you can give me one reason to tack on some scientific plausibility onto it, then, you know, like I, I feel like it makes the whole story. So I love looking into that type of stuff. If you read Aquaman Andromeda, um, the entire crew kind of jumps down into, into the water and they don't really have oxygen tanks. Uh, they have a oxygenated slurry that goes into their lungs, so it feels like drowning, and they're breathing technically breathing water and not breathing air at that point. Uh, and I remember uh, the editor on the book kind of writing to me, going like, "Is this is this even a thing? Like, are we going to have to explain to people?" And then I had like a one and a half page research document <laughs> with a patent that somebody had filed to create one of these suits, kind of. <laughs> Locked and loaded, ready to go. Go like, well, it's plausible. It's plausible enough that someone's patented it. So, <laughs> like, and ba boom, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, so I that yeah, that's my that's my niche, I suppose. I love that. Um, all right, so final question: You and Philippe Andrade coming back together, rare flavors. What can you tell us about that project? Um. I feel like it is a second in a series of really important cathartic questions about humanity. The first one dealt with life and death, and obviously the next place to go is Indian food. <laughs> uh, so, so Rare Flavors is, uh, is a book about food, specifically Indian food. Um, but obviously I'm using food as a lens slash vehicle to talk about just people and lives. And, and I feel like that's the original storytelling language, even before language existed, right? Like, if you, you may not know Japanese, but if you go into a sushi shop in Japan as a tourist, you can't speak a lick of Japanese, but you sit down and you observe how that food is made and how they serve it to you and what's okay to, to do, what's not okay to do, how you hold your chopsticks. And suddenly you have, you know, a cultural bridge. You've learned something about another person, another people, another society without a single word having been exchanged. And I feel like um, we undervalue how much food and culture and, and food and people cross over. Uh, and I also feel like I have a fascinating sort of genre framework to tell that story with and that the story is being told by um, a demon from Indian mythology who was famous for eating tons and tons of food. Uh, so, 
so yeah, it makes for an interesting, just like just like Let a Star, you know, goddess of death talking about life and death. I've got a demon who loves eating food talking about Indian food and people and why he loves uh, both things. That sounds incredibly compelling. I'm very excited <laughs> for that. Thank you. I'm excited. Everyone was rocked by the uh, the chai tea allegations of Across the Spider-Verse. I'm excited for everyone to read. Rare oh, yeah. Flavors. The first issue is called Masala Chai. Not Masala Chai Tea, just Masala Chai. <laughs> oh, man. I always feel very, very in the crosshairs when TikTok's like, if you just order chicken tikka masala and butter chicken, you're the problem. It's like, I am the problem. I'm yeah, you know, hard. like those things like didn't even exist in Indian cuisine. I mean, butter chicken did, but mas chicken tikka masala is very specifically like a British invention and not really, really yeah yeah not really part of indian cuisine much like chai actually like uh, most people don't realize that indian people weren't big tea drinkers uh, tea was predominantly a chinese uh, beverage which the british and the east india trading company realized was an incredibly profitable thing to grow uh, they found that it would grow just fine in india uh, and then the economically most sensible thing to do was to get people in India to drink the product that you were manufacturing in India. And so tea drinking as a habit only came to India after the British started growing tea in India. And um, the reason masala chai exists in particular is because uh, the spices that are put into that tea used to be drunk as a, as a, as a spiced concoction for good health by a lot of rich slash royal families in India. And then one of those cooks decided to mix the two things, mix tea and the spiced concoction, and you ended up with your Indian masala chai that way. Uh, that is very interesting. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, Indians, not all Indians weren't very big on tea until, until post-Empire. So, yeah. This is just a personal me question at this point. I don't know if it'll stay in the interview or not, but what good books, nonfiction books, would you recommend to read to just get more informed about India, Britain's role in India, and that whole thing? I feel very curious, but I don't know what to look at. I don't. I don't know. I mean, to be okay. to be honest, like I don't really read a lot of nonfiction. Okay. Most of my most of my research happens from like picking bits and pieces from from various locations. Like, okay, the Savage Shores, for example, came off of a letter um, and a, a, an article written in an Indian newspaper about the last royal descendant of the Zamoran family who had passed away very recently and had left quite a large chunk of his wealth to just people and, and educational institutions and the kind of you can take the royalty from a from a, a person but you can't take their dignity you can't take their generosity away if you will so i mean we're, we're digressing but uh the point of that being that because i don't do research in that i, I see a book and i pick up a title and i read it uh, I read a lot more fiction than I read nonfiction. Uh, my nonfiction research just happens with like, oh, I wonder what that is, and then I'll fall down a fall down a rabbit hole and just follow every single thing that connects to that. Um, so yeah, so so the I mean the way to find out more about India and the and the empire there is pick up a topic that interests you. Tea, for example, yeah, just you know. Take a take a few hours and sit down and Google a lot of stuff and and sometimes you'll find nonsense that isn't true, uh, but you know if you look long enough you'll be able to put enough stuff together to where you're like okay this seems like it's legit it could be logical and then and then you go out and find other people who are knowledgeable and interested in those those very things and do your own research that way. Interesting, I. You write very plausible comics. I like that thing you talked about with your sci-fi needing to be plausible. 
I absolutely had you pegged to someone who's reading a ton of nonfiction all the time. It's... No, I don't read a I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but I read a lot of like. I mean, I guess you could call journalistic articles nonfiction. Yeah. So I read a lot of journalistic articles, but I don't really read nonfiction books per se. Like the last one I read, I think was Deep Work, Cal Newport Deep Work, and largely talked about developing. But but, but okay, this will this will show this is a good example of my, how my brain works. So in Deep Work, he talks about uh, a blacksmith uh, uh, who specifically kind of tries to do their smithing the way it was done, you know, 400, 500 years ago, rather than use modern techniques. Uh, and then that got me interested in like, oh, what were blacksmithing techniques 400, 500 years ago? That got me interested in looking at Japanese steel folding to make to make samurai swords. And then that got me interested in um, famed Japanese sword makers from, you know, Edo era Japan. And that got me linked to samurai stories so, um, yeah, I feel like that's a much more, at least for me, like a much more interesting way of exploring rather than, rather yeah. than reading a nonfiction book. I like that. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you so much for your time. I My really pleasure. had a good time with this. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for, for reaching out. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to plug to our listeners before I let you go? Um, well, a few few upcoming things. Uh, I've got a creator-owned project with Dark Horse on the way. It's it's uh, in the vicinity of the mecha kaiju genre, uh, and and hopefully will be announced soon. So we're uh, quite excited to to have that out. And then I've got another project with uh, Image on the way. Um, it's I suppose again without giving too much away because it's not announced yet. It's a murder mystery, sci-fi, semi-metafictional uh, thing that does also does multiple POVs like Rashomon, um, but in comics. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm working with another creative team uh, in tandem, and and so um, quite excited to to see what people think of that. Um, and then, yeah, more and more stuff with DC on the way as well. Uh, jump into the potentially the second half of my of my detective run uh, soon. Uh, and then there's there's some whispers about the visual maybe getting extended. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Awesome. Well, thank you. And everybody, we will see you back here next week. Bye. Great. Thank you.